We have discovered this morning there are two stages of the air conditioning units uh, units system that services this building, this part of the building. And we have discovered this morning that one of them is not functioning as it should. So that's why it's a little warmer than usual. The back door is open to let as much cool air from the foyer come in as possible. But uh, we appreciate your patience. And, and Lord willing, it will be fixed next by next Sunday when we meet together here. Uh, we did not decide we decided not to have a service outdoors this summer. For the last several years, we've had a service outdoors. Uh, we decided not to do it because it's too warm. <laughs> yes. So. Um, but this is what we have today, and it's good. So, actually, in light of the conditions, I'm going to be preaching on the fiery furnace. <laughs> Not really. Uh, on May 14th, just a couple of weeks ago, the Associated Press uh, released an article by a man by the name of John Christofferson, Christofferson uh, about a young graduate of the Coast Guard Academy. Um, here's how the article begins. I'm going to read right from the Associated Press. Orlando Morell was six years old when he and his mother left Haiti on a crowded, small wooden boat destined for America. Now 24, Morell remembers, Morell, excuse me, remembers the blue of the ocean everywhere and the hunger. When a piece of bread fell into the water, Morell quickly scooped it up. I will never forget that taste, he said, recalling the salty, soggy bread. Nor will he forget when the Coast Guard showed up in a white boat and rescued him, his mother, and the other passengers. Eternally grateful, the rescue led Morrell to join the Coast Guard, and on Wednesday, a week or so ago, he will graduate from the U.S. Coast Guard Academy in Connecticut. He will serve on a cutter out of Florida whose mission will include migrant interdiction in the very waters where Morrell was rescued nearly two decades ago. I can put myself in their shoes, said Morell, who can still speak Creole. He says he would probably be dead had the Coast Guard not found him and his fellow migrants who were lost and out of food. So he's excited at the prospect of saving lives just as his was saved. Now, Morell's life was not free of... of uh, trouble after he was rescued. As the article continues, you find that his mother, when he was, they were found, was very ill, and soon after their rescue, she died in a Navy hospital. Uh, Morell actually was adopted by the Haitian translator. There was a Haitian translator in the Navy, a single woman by the name of Louise Jackson. She was a single mom, and she was the Haitian translator, and she both told Orlando of his mother's death and then proceeded with adoption uh, the adoption proceedings so that she could bring him into her own home. Morell says of Jackson that he, uh, she pushed him, she challenged him, she confronted him, she loved him. And one thing that she repeated to him over and over again was that the Coast Guard saved his life. And again, now as a Coast Guard graduate, he's going to be involved in the life-saving business. It's a great story. And it has shades in it of the gospel, doesn't it? When you are rescued by Jesus Christ through faith on the basis of his death on the cross, your life changes. Imagine how this story would be different and how you would hear it differently this Memorial Day weekend if it was a story of Morell who instead of becoming a Coast Guard officer, uh, rescuing other stranded migrants, became a pirate who was preying on them. Imagine how you'd hear that story differently, that instead of joining the Coast Guard that rescued him, he was out there evading, fighting, eluding the Coast Guard, opposing the Coast Guard. 
Something would be wrong. There would be a stillbirth. The, the, uh, the truth of his rescue would not have come to full term in his life if that's what he chose to do. We're walking our way through the book of Ephesians and we're focusing on the rescue that God has provided us through Jesus Christ and the life change that comes as a result of it. Chapters 1 through 3 are about the rescue that has happened. And chapters 4 through 6 are about how life, how that rescue changes us. The gospel turns liars into truth tellers. It tells, it turns thieves into generous workers. It turns angry people into forgivers. And Paul wants you, his readers that he never met, but who are his brothers and sisters in Christ, to understand that when you have a clearer vision of what you've been rescued from, who you've been rescued by, and how the rescue has taken place, when you have a clearer uh, understanding, a vision of that, it changes the way you live. It sets you on a new path. Whenever we find in the pages of this book a description of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, it's an incumbent upon us to think to ourselves and to consider and to talk with one another about how does this change me? What implications does this have for how I live my life? Uh, we're going to continue that emphasis on this new life today, and I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn them to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 is where I want to direct your attention this morning as we meet, move through this book. Uh, Ephesians 5, I'm going to read from verses 1 through 6 uh, this morning. Ephesians 5, 1 through 6. Um, he, listen to what God's Word says. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving, for of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Let's pray, shall we? Father, our, your um, word is open before us. Uh, we have read the book, and now we believe fully we are speaking to the author. God, we pray that you would unfold the truth before us by your spirit. Uh, this passage speaks of hard things, uh, and yet uh, we want to be soft unto your, in your word. We believe that the hard truths in your scriptures make for soft hearts of your people. So uh, help us today to listen carefully, uh, clearly. Help, help me to speak in a way that would be useful for these uh, who are gathered here, these uh, brothers and sisters of mine. If, if I have things planned to say that are not useful, uh, um, uh, help me to set them aside. If I have things that I should say, um, uh, help me to have the courage to, to uh, proclaim them this morning. 
Um, we believe it is a, is a holy and a good moment when your word is open before us. So we come before you to ask for your help, that it would be useful for us today, equipping us for every good work, instructing us, correcting us, teaching us, rebuking us. Uh, do that work today, we pray among us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul punctuates chapters 4 through 6 with this command, this repeated word, walk or live. Uh, the command almost functions, the word live, functions almost like section markers in Ephesians 4, one, uh, 4 through 6. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, Paul says, walk in unity. In 4.17 through the end of chapter 4, walk in holiness. Next week, Lord willing, from 5.7 to 5.14, we're going to look at a passage of scripture that says, walk in the light and from 5, 1 through 6, though, we have been talking about this issue, walk in love, walk in love. It's surprising. Paul expects our encounter with the love of God, our position as dearly loved children, that it would change us. Our understanding of God's love would change us, that it would motivate us to lead new lives. The reason that's surprising is because that's not usually what we think of when we think of motivation and change. Usually we motivate ourselves or we motivate others by shame or guilt or pride. Uh, Paul here, though, expects that our encounter with God's love will change us. Not that it will merely make us nicer or uh, gentler uh, or more friendly, but that our encounter with God's love would come with the power to penetrate deeply and to change us significantly. Uh, you can see that as we move from verses 1 through 2, uh, 1 to 2, which we talked about last week, to verses 3 through 6. The text here moves from the sacrificial love of Christ to our battle with self-love. That's the contrast in these, these verses. Sacrificial love versus self-love. And self-love is actually our subject for today. I want to talk to you about identifying and rooting out self-love. And we're going to talk about uh, three aspects of self-love. We're going to talk, first of all, about how self-love behaves. Then I want to talk about how self-love speaks. And third, I want to talk about where self-love leads. Those three things, how it behaves, how it speaks, and where it leads. First, let's talk about how self-love behaves. Verse 3, Paul writes this, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Now, what I intend to do here, there are three examples of self-love. We're going to talk about what those are. Then there's this verb that he used, they must not even be a hint we're going to talk about that. And then last, we're going to talk about the reason, the last part of this verse, because these are improper for God's holy people. So let's talk about what these things are first. First, sexual immorality. The word sexual immorality is the English translation of the Greek word porneia. You are familiar with this word probably because it comes into English uh, combined with the word for writing to become our English word pornography. Uh, in ancient Greek literature, porneia refers to uh, uh, prostitution or homosexuality. In the Bible, uh, the King James translation often uses the word fornication. Uh, it refers to sex outside of marriage. 
It's, it's a broad word, porneia is. It refers to any sort of sexual behavior outside of a marriage between a husband and a wife. Sexual immorality refers to anything that violates or interferes with the sexual loyalty between covenant marriage partners. And it includes a host of behaviors. Adultery, pornography, premarital sex, masturbation, voyeurism, sexual assault, homosexual experimentation, many, many other forms of sexual immorality, which um, a list of which we don't need to continue with. Now, the standard here that that the book uh, that the Bible sets for us, the book of Ephesians sets for us is that if you are not married, there is to be in your life no sexual behavior. And if you are married, all forms of sexual intimacy are to be with your spouse and with your spouse alone. That's Paul's standard. Now, the word impurity could also be translated uncleanness. Your Bible might say uncleanness instead of impurity. It, it first appears in Ephesians 4, verse 19, to talk about Gentiles and the lives that they lead. It refers impurity to sexual sin too. It's a little bit broader. It refers to moral impurity. It speaks more of the, uh, the staining influence of sensuality on our hearts. And with these two words, we recognize here that the temptations that these ancient readers faced are remarkably similar to the temptations that we face in our culture. Uh, Sexual immorality outside of the bonds of marriage, uh, sexual intimacy outside of the bonds of marriage, are, are so commonplace, it's just ubiquitous. This is the way it is. We are the weird ones who think that sexual intimacy ought to be reserved for marriage. Uh, It would surprise you and shock you, I think, to hear uh, how much college students and uh, teenagers in high school talk about how commonplace pornography is in their lives as part of their daily living. It would surprise you to hear them how much they talk about it. When you were that age, it it may have been common, but at least it was a shameful thing. Now it's not. We are becoming more and more like uh, the Greco-Roman world in which immorality was a normal part of life. Uh, There was no shame. There was no questioning. There was no wondering if life should be different than the immoral way that life was. And the Apostle Paul sees these behaviors in the church. He's warning the church about these things. I think that's somewhat helpful that Paul writes to the church about this. I'll, I'll tell you why in a few minutes. Our sins are their sins. The struggle of these early Roman and Greek followers of Christ in Ephesus are the same as 21st century American followers of Christ. The third element he lists here is greed. Sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. Why greed? Greed is selfishness that uh, has reached an extreme degree. And, and it's one of those sins that often we, we miss or we don't think about very much. Paul says in verse 5 that greedy people are idolaters. A, a greedy person is someone who's worshiping another, another god. Uh, listen to what Tim Keller said about greed. He said this, Some years ago I was doing a seven-part series of talks on the seven deadly sins at a men's breakfast, and my wife Kathy told me, 
I'll bet that the week you deal with greed will be the lowest attendance. She was right. People packed it out for lust and wrath and even for pride, but nobody thinks they are greedy. As a pastor, I've had people come to me and confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. Greed hides itself from the victim. The money god's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. Now, do you wonder why he mentions greed here, how he goes from these two sexual sins to greed? What's the connection between them? How, how do they relate to each other? Seems seems like greed doesn't fit in the list. I read a couple suggestions about why they might be together, these sins. I think both of them are somewhat helpful. Maybe the scriptures here are talking about sexual greed, those who focus merely on self-gratification, their own pleasure. All, sec, all sense of sexual intimacy, all sense that sexual intimacy is, is a time of sharing and giving is, is gone. The Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments says, don't covet your neighbor's wife. I wonder if that's why Paul mentions greed here on the heels of these two sexual sins. That's one suggestion. I'm, I'm not sure. It seems like sexual, if, if Paul was talking about sexual greed, he would have already covered that in the term sexual immorality, which is pretty broad. Here's another suggestion that I think maybe is even better. Uh, it seems like these three sins all result from a belief that what God has provided is not enough. What God has provided is not enough. That's, that's the, the, the key that puts these three together, the, the chain that ties them together. He has not provided enough pleasure, so we break his boundaries. Or, he has not provided enough money for me, so we live with this constant craving for more. What God has provided is not enough. If God doesn't provide what I think I need financially, the result is greed. But, but a similar impulse drives sexual immorality too. If God doesn't provide the pleasure that I think I need, that I deserve, impurity is always an option. And that sort of thinking can drive sexual immorality in both single and in married people. One of the best uh, articles I have ever read about sexual purity is by David Powlison. You can find it online free uh, easily. It's called Making All Things New, Restoring Pure Joy to the Sexually Broken. It's a great article. I think we gave a copy of it away at Man U. It's very helpful. In the article, he talks about a young man that he has met who came to him for help. Every Friday night, this young man uh, fell into sexual sin, and Powlison asked him about it, and he said... This young man, I work hard all week, and on Friday night, I am home alone, and I get angry at God. I am angry because all of my friends are either out with their girlfriends or home with their wives and families, and I'm all alone. God hasn't, this is his belief, God has not provided enough for me. And that's how he is justifying this sexual immorality. The same thing can happen in uh, uh, marriages, too. This is one of the ways that married men or married women can rationalize their own sexual immorality. There's not enough or the right kind of sexual uh, intimacy in my marriage. 
And if we uh, if there was just more of it or if it was just better, uh, I wouldn't have to sin the way that I do. That rationalization. Oh, I'm being cheated, so I have to do something about it. Does that that rationalization ever sound familiar? Does it sound one of the, the compelling uh, factors of, of that sort of rationalization is, huh, and I want to say this very carefully, there may be a shade of, of truth in it. There's this subtlety of sin and rationalization. Paul was aware of this. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, Husbands and wives, you belong to one another. You're concerned about one another. Your body is not your own. And part of sacrificial love in a marriage means making physical intimacy a priority. So both of you invest in it. I read an excellent book, very thin little book, about marriage not too long ago by Joel Beakey. It's called Friends and Lovers. The title is based on a, a verse from the Song of Songs. Friends and lovers. What distinguishes the marriage covenant is that the, in, within the marriage they are both a husband and wife are friends and lovers. And friendship and love, uh, physical love, both must be cultivated for the relationship to be healthy and happy. So that rationalization might work its way into your mind through a, a, a pinprick of the truth. But listen carefully. This is what I am particularly concerned about. Some of you have so habituated yourself to use sex for comfort or for a thrill when life is boring or hard or for pleasure outside of the context of your marriage relationship that, that it is fulfilling a role in your life that it was never meant to fulfill. And even in the most perfect marriage, if you had the perfect marriage, it would not be able to fill the gaping hole that you have created in your soul by your sexual idolatry. Uh, well, this has become a sermon that is embarrassing to be sitting next to your mother with. So let's proceed here, shall we? Verse 3 talks about the verb. Verse 3 has a verb in it that I want to talk about here now. It says... Among you, there must not even be a hint. Um, or a, a, a better way that you can translate that maybe is it should not even be named among you. Your translation might say that. Don't even let these sins be named among you. That is, they're not supposed to be characteristic of believers. An observer would never say this. When talking about Christians, they would never mention these three things. Sexual immorality, impurity, greed. Let them not even be named among you. I can illustrate what this verb means. If you were asked to make a list of characteristics of an elephant, what would be on your list? Big, strong, gray, wrinkly, powerful. You would never have on your list the word tiny, willowy, wispy, right? Not even named. You can't even name these characteristics about an elephant or a pig farm. Let's think about a pig farm. Would you ever, when you're making a list of characteristics to describe a pig farm, put fragrant? <laughs> well, you could use the word fragrant, but not the way that uh, perfume makers want you to think of fragrant, right? Pleasant smelling. You would never, that would not even be named when you're describing a pig farm. Paul says, don't let these things be named among you. Let them be so uh, far from you, so far from who you are and how you live, that they're not even nameable um, um, among you. 
This is a warning to us about the toleration of these sort of sins in our lives. Your toleration for it in your life. Do you think a lot about what you would do if you had more money and how you wish you had more money and if you had more things, you'd be happier and you'd be more satisfied and it's not fair that the people around you have more things than you do? They have it. I should have it. Why don't I? It's not right. Do you tolerate that pattern of thinking in your life? Does it disturb you? Do you have uh, patterns in your life for the sort of sexual immorality that you commit on Friday night or on Saturday and then you come on Sunday to repent and you feel especially bad if it's a communion Sunday and you really blew it over the weekend and that's your pattern because that's the way you live and you tolerate these sins. You have not rooted out self-love. There is not even to be a hint, not even named. Now, can I make a suggestion about this before we move on? Brian Chappell suggests that sexual immorality and greed, by the way, too, are a sin like fire. Fire burns most intensely when it is fed. In fact, in order for the fire to burn, it must be fed. How are you feeding your greed? Some of you watch entirely too much HGTV and every time you see somebody's brand new kitchen, you think to yourself, I ought to have that too. Some of you uh, uh, hunt for, uh, you, have, you feed the fire of sexual immorality through the television shows that you watch or the magazines that you read or the books that you read or the, the movies that you see. Don't feed the flames. One of the ways that we pursue purity is by starving impurity. So what fuel sources are you going to eliminate from your life? Now, verse 3 has one more phrase that's worth looking at, and we're going to do that. It says, the text says, these are improper, it says, these are improper for God's holy people. Sexual immorality, impurity, and greed are clear manifestations of self-love, self-care, self-protection. And because they're self-focused, and not sacrificial, they are clearly contrary to Christ's example. This is not the way Jesus lived. Romans 15 says, Christ did not please himself. These behaviors are clearly opposed to Christ's example, but they are also contrary to the nature of faith, nature of, of the fact that we are believing people. Here's what, here's what I mean by that. The message of the gospel is that you have a problem that you cannot solve, namely uh, sin, whether it be sexual immorality, like in this passage, or gossip or lying or racism or self-righteousness. You have a problem that you cannot solve and you're not smart enough. You're not strong enough. You're not clever enough. You're not good enough to make up for the problem that you can't solve. You live in the world that God made and your rebellion against him means that you stand opposed to him and he will reestablish his authority and you need to be rescued from his wrath. And if you're going to be rescued, you have to turn to Christ. This is what we believe. He is the one who is wise enough and good enough and strong enough. He's good and wise and strong enough to have come and lived in this world perfectly without ever succumbing to any of the sins that we face every day. And he is good and wise and strong enough to have paid the penalty for our sins on the cross when he died. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. 
He's the substitute. He bore the Father's wrath on the cross. And the Bible calls us all to turn to him in dependent faith. That turning to him is itself an act of surrender. It's a recognition that you have come to the end of yourself, that you have a problem, that you're not good enough, smart enough, strong enough to solve yourself. That's what faith means. I am relying on someone else for the solution to my sin problem. The problem with these three sins of self-love here, the reason that they're not proper for God's people is because these three forms of self-love involve taking back control of what you have turned over to Christ. What you have acknowledged is out of your control. These three sins mean taking that control back. The gospel says, I am not good enough, wise enough, strong enough to live in this world that God has made. Self-love, though, says, I can handle it. I am smart enough. I am wise enough and good enough. I can do all these things without getting hurt. It's, it's a, this self-love is a form of, of uh, uh, a, great, a greater form of rebellion. I, I don't, God, I don't need to listen to what you have to say about these sins. See, the sort of faith that turns to God for deliverance, for rescue from sin, is the sort of faith that trusts what he provides and trusts his judgment about these sins. That that what God gives is enough. That, That the pleasure God gives, that the resources God gives, they're enough. I'm going to trust in your provision. You who provided your son for us, We will also trust you for your provision of pleasure and resources that we have. Now, this is how self-love behaves, these three things. Now, let's talk now here about how self-love talks, how self-love speaks. Um, Obviously, we're going to move a little bit more quickly here. Look at verse 4. It has three words in it. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. What all three of these things, obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse joking, what they all have in common is that they take God's good gifts and they treat them merely as tools for our amusement or for our um, uh, advancement. Obscenity is speech that treats sex, God's good gift, as something to be laughed about, something to be toyed with, something to be played with. Uh, It is saying about sexual intimacy, this good gift, that it's something you can play with and you can kick around in the mud because it doesn't matter. You're the master of it and it's just for your uh, uh, sly jokes. That's obscenity. Foolish talk does the same. uh, It's actually as more general. It treats everything as trifling. You're a foolish talker if you treat important things as inconsequential or silly things as vital. It would be very sad if in your small group all you ever talked about was work or football or the Phillies. That would be sad. Uh, Now, coarse joking does something very similar to obscenity. Coarse joking is more focused on human beings, and it takes human beings that are made in God's image and treats them as something for your pleasure or for your advancement. Um, The emphasis is on humor that demeans or humor that belittles other people. Taking God's good gifts and using them for your mere, sly, sarcastic amusement. That's self-love. And the contrast to this sort of self-love is thanksgiving. 
Interesting. Thanksgiving. He doesn't tell him to to have good jokes. He says, Thanksgiving. Instead of using your mouth to manipulate and belittle and use sex or people uh, uh, for your own uh, uh, pitiful uh, enjoyment, you're you're supposed to use your mouth to acknowledge that that everything that exists is, is part of God's mastery. It's part of God's provision, part of God's gift. Sexual intimacy is a good gift. It's not a punchline. Other people are not objects for your sarcastic put-downs. They are human beings made in God's image and thus are worthy of dignity and respect. And and God is to be thanked and honored for them. That's how self-love speaks. And that sort of, uh, this sort of um, uh, thing, obscenity, foolish talk, they're out of place. It doesn't fit among God's people. Now, verses 5 and 6 help us identify and root out self-love by showing us where self-love leads. Where self-love leads. He's building here on what sort of life fits with those who believe the gospel. Um, Verse 5, those sort of people who live immoral, impure, or greedy lives, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. That is, they're not saved. Now, Notice here, on the one hand, Paul tells the Ephesians they need to excise them from their lives. And now he tells them if their life is characterized by these things, they're probably not Christians. Hmm. Does this make you wonder about your spiritual condition? What, what if these things are in my life? How much of them in my life is enough? Or how much should I have? Or how much shouldn't I have? Or what? Does this make you wonder about your salvation? Paul here is writing to men and women that he believed were genuine followers of Christ. And like them, these things may be present in your life. You may struggle with greed. I know there's people in this room that struggle with greed and sexual immorality. But Paul says that if they characterize your life, The Bible demands you need to recognize they do not match your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. The stakes for this are very high. In fact, they're so high that there seems to be people who are cutting the connection between the profession of faith and these sort of behaviors. That's why Paul says in verse 6, don't let anybody deceive you with empty words. There are people who will tell you that it does not matter, that, that the gospel won't show up in your life. There are people who, who are telling you that. Don't be deceived by them. It is because of these things that the wrath of God comes. God's eternal wrath comes on those who are My text says disobedient. Yours might say the sons of disobedience. Dorothy Sayers was a novelist. She was a committed Christian. She once wrote about two different types of laws. There are laws that we invent and we make. uh, Stop sign laws. A local municipality, a local township decides we need a stop sign at this intersection, so they put a stop sign there. And you are responsible to obey that law as a citizen of that township or someone even traveling through. And you come up to the stop sign and you stop, you look, and then you go. Uh, if you don't stop, you'll get a ticket. Uh, the, the police can pull you over and, and fine you and you'll have to pay a penalty for breaking that law. That's one type of law. There's another sort of law in this world, though. Uh, Sayers, for illustrative purposes, calls it the law of fire. 
The law of fire states that if you put your hand in a fire, it will burn. No municipality, no Congress, no president, no dictator can overturn the law of fire. It is what it is in the world God made. God's moral laws are like the laws of fire. You cannot break God's laws. Instead, you will break yourself upon them. God's wrath comes on those who are the sons of disobedience. In these six verses we actually have here, uh, we come full circle. There's two families in this passage. You notice there's God's family. He talks about dearly loved children in verse 1. They think deeply about God's love, God's dearly loved children. They, they, they think deeply about God's love and it makes them different. And then in verse 6, there's the disobedient sons. There's the disobedient family. Uh, uh, they don't believe that God is good. They don't believe that Christ died for them. They don't believe that there is an eternal difference for those in Christ and those apart from him. And Paul wants you to think about family resemblance in these verses. When uh, Luke was born, our third child, um, one of the first things, the doctor was the first to see Luke, and one of the first things she said about him when he emerged, she said, look at that red hair. And Kathy and I both said, what? Concerning, uh, considering uh, my genetic contribution, it was amazing he had hair anyway, but he came out that way. Uh, we, know, we know that he is ours because sometimes he acts just like his mother. <laughs> Actually, those of you who know uh, us both know that when he acts like his mother, that's not his problem. He has... There's other issues. People ask us all the time. They say, where did his red hair come from? Where did that red hair come from? It's deep, deep in the gene pool. It's interesting. When you spend time with a lot of kids and their parents, parents love to see themselves and their kids, or they like to see their spouse. This is one of the things that you will talk about at your family reunion. You bring your child for the first time to a family reunion, and they say, oh, look, he's got Uncle Charlie's ears. Or, oh, look, she's got your smile. Uh, uh, oh, look, sometimes it's, it's not so much in appearance, but in behavior. And you say to your kids, when you're watching your grandkids, huh, that's what you used to do when you didn't get your way either. The behavior, appearance, parents love this. Grandparents love this. They love to see themselves or their kids and their grandkids. Paul is calling you to that same joy. Our father and our older brother, the Lord Jesus, were masters and modelers of sacrificial love. That's, it's a family trait. We're dearly loved children. And because of that, we root out self-love. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we uh, sit under this uh, sharp word that is before us here. What Paul says, it's sharp. Uh, it, It cuts us deeply in places that are close to who we are and the relationships that we have. I, I, there's, there's not a person in this room who has not 
who does not struggle with greed. And there's not a person in this room who has not in their lifetime battled with sexual immorality and impurity. Father, we come before you uh, through our older brother and we ask that you would cultivate in us the family trait. We are dearly loved children. we, we could think about your great love. It is infinite. It's high. It's wide. It's long. It's deep. We, we can contemplate it and sing about it. And in fact, we will for eternity. We'll be celebrating your love and you will be unfolding to us new mysteries and new uh, great things about the extent of your mercy for us. God, would you drive that deeply in us, we pray, that it would change us. You love us and you gave us your son. You love us and you gave us your word. We trust your son for our salvation and we trust what you say about sexual immorality and greed and impurity. We trust it. And we want to live out of it, you who gave us this good word. Thank you for your kindness to us. Help us as brothers and sisters to encourage one another on in this battle for holiness that we face, that we might walk in love before you. It's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.